Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. We're thrilled today to have a great scholar with us to talk on this very important and relevant topic of speaking religious truth to political power. And I want to tell you just very briefly about her before I pass it over. Rabbi Andrea L. Weiss, PhD, is Jack Joseph and Morton uh, Mandel, Provost and Associate Professor of Bible at the Hebrew, Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. She's the founder of the American Values Religious Voices Campaign, co-editor of American Values Religious Voices, 100 Days, 100 Letters, University of Cincinnati Press 2019 with volume two forthcoming in fall 2022, an associate editor of the Torah, a woman's commentary, CCR Press 2008. Her other writings include Figurative Language in Biblical Prose Narrative, Metaphor in the Book of Samuel, published by Brill in 2006, and articles on metaphor, biblical poetry, and biblical conceptions of God. It's a real um, honor and delight to introduce Rabbi Dr. Andrew Weiss. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you uh, for having me. It's nice to be here and to share with all of you um, a project that uh, has become uh, a real passion of mine and a sort of un unexpected uh, uh, new direction in my career following the 2016 election. So I'm going to share my screen and, and share this story with you. Um, so um, Alex, can you just let me know if Oh, you know what, I'm gonna, I forgot to do the audio. So I'm gonna stop and make, make sure that I click. Yep, I got it, okay. Um, so I wanna share, I'm delighted to have a to chance to share with you uh, a project, as I said, that came about in the wake of the 2016 election. Um, and really in the, the days that followed the, the election as I started to think about both in reflecting on the campaign and in, in imagining, um, trying to get a sense of what the, the coming uh, months and years might look for us. And I had the idea as I thought about the ways in which during the campaign, so many of core American values that I had always taken for granted as really foundational to who our country is, all of a sudden it did not seem so secure, or so foundational. And I thought to myself, I thought about how many of those core American values are connected to our different religious traditions. So I had the idea, kind of a nutty idea, far-fetched idea in the days following the election, that what if we could get 100 scholars of religion from all different faiths uh, from around the country to come together to articulate both for our elected leaders and a broader audience what our core American values are and the way they are connected to our ancient, enduring religious traditions. So with this idea, there were three idea, there were three people that helped to make this idea a reality. And I want to introduce them to you. And I will take you through the story of how this campaign worked, how it came about, how it worked, and along the way, share some of the letters with you. And I'll pause at certain points to take your questions and comments. So how, how this idea came about. So when I had this idea to get this 100 letters and to get 100 people together to, um, to publish these letters, I went down the street. I live in the Philadelphia suburbs in the town called Balakinwood, and it's quite convenient for me as a Bible scholar to live down the street from actually two Bible scholars, uh, Mark Smith and his wife, Liz Blacksmith, who are both 
Bible scholars. And I knocked on their door and I said to Mark, um, who's been a mentor and a teacher of mine, I said, Mark, I had this idea. What do you think? And he listened and he said, uh, I think it's a good idea and I'll help. I'll help to the extent that I can. I'll help you make it happen. So with that encouragement, um, uh, I the couple of days later, this is the Sunday after the election, I went to the New York campus of the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, where we were having a big symposium. And I went up to our then president, Rabbi Aaron Pankin of Blessed Memory. And I said to Rabbi Pankin, I have this idea. Um, I think I'll need a web website, maybe a, maybe a student intern. Would you be willing to give me some money to fund the project? I said, maybe it would cost about $5,000. I had no clue what the project would entail or what it would cost, but I asked anyways. And he thought about it and he came back to me the next day and he said, um, give, it a, give it a shot and I'll, I'll provide the financial support that you need. And for Rabbi Pankin, this was important. This represented for him what was a hallmark of his presidency, which is the idea of thought leadership, the idea that what we... Uh, scholars at the Hebrew Union College do in our studies matters in the world and is relevant to the issues of our day. So with his encouragement, I then reached out to a friend of mine, Lisa Weinberger, who has a graphic design and branding studio in Philadelphia. And I sent Lisa the following letter. First, I asked her if she would take care of my dog on, on a weekend. You'll meet my dog a little bit later in the PowerPoint. And then I told her I had this idea, and you can see my, I was originally calling it uh, an idea that didn't stick. Scripture teaches 100 days, 100 scholars of the book. And I shared this idea, and I said to her, you know, I, I knew not, I wasn't on social media. I really not technologically savvy, but I figured I'd need a website and some other graphic elements, and I asked if she'd be willing to help. And again, I had no idea what I was asking. And if I did, as I saw the project unfold, um, I probably wouldn't have had the chutzpah to ask, but I did. And the next day, Lisa wrote me back this, I'm in for both. And Lisa explained to me later that she felt like she had a hole in her heart after the election. And she thought, what could she do as a graphic designer that would really make a difference in the world? And here, kind of out of the blue, my email popped up in her inbox asking her to take her, her gifts and her resources and to put them in service of something bigger than herself. And she volunteered right away. So I then put together an advisory committee, um, both of colleagues, some who I uh, had never met before, but just started, I started reaching out to people. I did, before I started this project, I did not have much of an interfaith network. So I just kept asking people um, who they knew who might wanna be involved in the project. And I kept then compiling a list of people. So with the advisory committee, we um, put together kind of the outlines of the project, what the letters would look like, and how the whole project would work. At the same time, Lisa was busy designing, coming up with the graphic identity of the project. You can see it has a real American look um, and setting up uh, our social media platforms. And we had a web, uh, web designer who volunteered to put the website together. So with all of that, on December 2nd of 2016, we sent a first batch of letters to about 100 scholars religion. And our the defining feature of this project was that everyone that we reached out to had a PhD. That was sort of that um, my sense on this was that unlike uh, 
rabbis and ministers and other clergy who literally have a pulpit that um, scholars of religion um, are not usually on the forefront of the public conversation. And I felt like this these are people that had something to say and that people might be willing, might be interested in um, and have something that they wanted to share with a larger audience. So what I asked people was the following. What passages from your religious tradition have you been thinking about in the wake of the election? What issues most concern you and how does your religious heritage speak to those concerns? What message rooted in the text you study and teach would you most like to deliver to our national leaders and to a wider interfaith audience, many of whom long for guidance, inspiration, and a reaffirmation of what it means to be American? And so with that, uh, that was on, uh, as I hear the day on, on December 2nd of 2016. So that, mean we, that meant that we had 50 days until January 20th, which, which was Inauguration Day. And it took us up until January 20th to get 100 people to sign up. Along the way, um, we started building a following on social media and starting to promote the campaign. And um, we were ready to launch uh, as of um, January 20th. And one of the things that in my mind's eye, when I first started the, thought of the project, I thought, what if we could get these hundred writers, but also what if we could put all of their pictures all on one page to really show the glorious diversity of our country. And um, as soon as we got all 100 and we got everyone to turn in their bios and their pictures and got the whole website together, Lisa put together this, which is on the, was at the time, this was the picture on the, the homepage of our website. And this to me really shows, really highlights the diversity of the project. You can see we have um, some veteran scholars and, and young scholars. We have people from all um, backgrounds and religious traditions um, that we have as well, a diverse audience. So we were able to achieve that um, uh, we had, uh, as well. So, and, and I'll read a little bit just so you can get a sense of who our letter writers are. Elsie um, Stern, who was on our editorial committee in, in letter 100 described our gave it an overview of, of our letter writers. She writes, the American Values Religious Voices letter writers provide a snapshot of the America you have pledged to surge, serve. We are men and women from red states and blue states. We identify as African-American, Asian, Latinx, Native American, and white. We are Buddhists, Christians of very denominations, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, and Sikhs. Some of our families have been in this country since before it was America. Others are immigrants ourselves. So this gives you a sense of who these hundred letter writers are. And now I'll share with you um, how the campaign itself worked. So um, the inauguration day on January 20th was on a Friday. So we divided the hundred days into weeks and um, every day, so, and day one was on a Friday. So every new week, started on a Friday. And so that meant um, by Wednesday, I would pick which of those the week's letters that we had people submitted their letters throughout the 100 days. So I would put together a week's worth of letters. And then um, on Thursday, we would promote them on our social media uh, platform to give sense to give folks um, a preview of the week ahead. And you can see just from this, how this gets a sense of the diversity of our letter writers in terms of um, place and in terms of, of backgrounds as well. And then every day at 5 a.m., which meant that I was getting up at 
for 50 just to make every every day for 100 days to make sure that everything went okay. We disseminated the letters in three ways. So first, I would upload them on our website. So at 5 a.m., they would come, they, the letters would pop up on our website and people, we had people subscribe. So we had over 2,000 subscribers. And so those folks would get an email every day at 5 a.m. saying um, today's day one, letter one with a link to the letter. And, um, at, this, and at the same time, the letters were also, uh, we had an... Um, a MailChimp account, then that's how we, I, I, I learned that you couldn't just directly send, here, let me go back uh, to this slide. So, so um, you can't, I, I learned I couldn't directly email our, all the members of Congress and the Senate. So I bought a list that had all the chiefs of staff and legislative directors of all members of the, of the House and Senate. And so all of those folks and the president and vice president then at 5 a.m. through MailChimp also got the same letter. Um, and, um, and so I wanna share, just I'll read my letter to you from 2017 so you can kind of get a sense of what the project was all about. And, and also it also shares also what, what motivated me to wanna to do this project. So I wrote at the time, um, in this time of transition in our nation's history, the words of the Bible call to us with clarity and urgency, reminding us of the core values that have formed the foundation of American society in the past and should guide us now as we begin a new administration. In the book, Reading the Bible with Our Founding Fathers, Daniel L. Dreisbach documents the Bible's profound influence on American politics and culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Records show that figures like George Washington, Thomas Paine, and John Adams invoked the words of the prophet Micah. This was in fact one of the most common Bible verses uh, invoked in, uh, at this time period. So this verse from Micah 6, 8, God has told you what is good and what God requires of you, only to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Explaining the popularity of this frequently quoted verse, Dreisbach writes, a common belief among the founding generation was that both individual and collective righteousness were prerequisites for divine favor and vital to the success of the American political experiment. They believed that a self-governing people must have an internal moral compass that would encourage divine citizens and the broader society to behave in a controlled, disciplined manner. And then I concluded then, brought the letter, uh, brought connected that Micah verse to some of the other biblical passages. So I wrote the message of Micah 6, 8 echoes throughout the Hebrew Bible, teaching us what it means to do justice and love mercy. The book of Exodus commands, you shall not wrong or oppress the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt you shall not mistreat any widow or orphan. By the way, that turned out to be the most frequently cited biblical verse in all the hundred letters. Um, I'll uh, can think what, what might be some of the other popular ones. And then I continued, the letter continues again and again, the Bible insists that we safeguard the most vulnerable individuals in our midst and treat them with dignity and empathy. The prophets voiced this expectation loud and clear as when Isaiah instructs, cease to do evil, learn to do good, devote yourself to justice, aid the wrong, uphold the rights of the orphan, 
defend the cause of the widow. That's from Isaiah 1, 16 to 17. And then I concluded the letter, still today in the early 20th century, these ancient biblical teachings about justice and mercy should dictate how we act and determine the policies we enact. Together, let us work to preserve and make manifest the values upon which our democracy was founded. So that gives you a sense of kind of the spirit of the letters so that the length, they were all about 350 words. And that was really the foundation of, um, of the project. And that got us started with day one. And on every morning, as I said, the letters went out um, uh, electronically. We also, um, starting early in the morning, we, um, we promoted them on our social media platforms. So for every letter, we would take a pull quote that Lisa uh, would make a, a slide like this. Um, and we put that on, on Twitter and Instagram. And then on Facebook, we tweeted a link and all with the link to the letter. And on Facebook, we used the author's photos. And you can get a sense from this. This is letter 100, but you can see 417 uh, or 4,714 people reach. Gives you a sense of by the end of the campaign, um, the, the reach of the project. And the third way, besides MailChimp and the website, that we, um, that we disseminated the letters was that for each letter, I printed out two copies on my, my printer at home, one directly addressed Dear President Trump and the other Dear Vice President Pence. And um, my dog, Sophie and I mailed the letters every morning. So those are our three ways that the letters got out. Um, and, and that was really our focus and really it took a huge amount of, of effort to get the campaign up and running in a matter of you know, just a matter of a few months, and then to get start to get the letters edited and on the website and out. And, and our main concern at the beginning was just getting the letters out. And what we didn't anticipate was how much feedback we would get on the campaign. As soon as we launched the website, how many people would con would contact us and share with us uh, their how they were responding to the letters as those hundred days unfolded. And as I would get feedback, it might be a text message or on Facebook or an email, I would share the feedback to Lisa. We were both working really hard and it was gratifying to see how people were responding to the letters. And then Lisa would turn the feedback that we were getting, turning them into art that we would then use on our social media platform. So you can see, again, uh, I didn't anticipate in publishing the letters so early is that for a lot of people, um, because the letters were published so early, they were the first email that people read in the morning. And a number of people told us how they would read the letters first thing in the morning as a morning prayer or a morning meditation, the way that the letters anchored them in, in, in those kind of 100 days as we were waiting to see how is this all this Trump administration going to going to play out so people felt like these letters anchored them that they were a lifeline to them to people for the values that they held true and enduring other people described the letters as an archive of compassion and democracy a beacon of level-headedness and morality and one of the the um important parts of the project this was a text that came from a college friend of mine who wrote, um, I'm loving my daily inspirational letters from voices I'm not accustomed to hearing. So the way, particularly as the that election made us realize how a phrase that we often heard, how siloed people were, that the project helped, allowed people to learn from and listen to um, 
to voices that they were not familiar, people from different religious traditions, people from different backgrounds than themselves, sharing their own insights and their own experiences. And another important project uh, aspect of the project was captured in this uh, feedback quote. The person wrote, these letters are not only inspirational, they are a historical record of our time, the way that they captured both in the topics of the letters as people responded to those hundred days in real time, um, they captured that particular moment in time. So I'm gonna preempt a question that I'm sure many of you are wondering, and that is, did anyone in Washington respond? So, um, and to, to answer that, we need to go to late to day 24. So, um, so day uh, day 24, which uh, which was you can see um, this was February 12th, and we're not we're just about a quarter of a way through the campaign. And the letter for that day was by Brian Massingale, who's a professor at Fordham University. And um, one of the fun things about the project was scheduling the letters, and um, I had lists of all the re the religious holidays, American holidays over those hundred days. And um, I would try to um, organize the letters to be connected. So this day 24, February 12th of 2017 was, was Lincoln's birthday. So I took the one, one of the letters I had that mentioned Lincoln and I, that's, I published the letter on that day. The whole week of President's Week, I put all of the letters that I had at, at that moment that mentioned presidents. Um, I will let you ponder which president was uh, invoked the most during the campaign. Um, and, uh, and for example, like uh, around Valentine's Day, I put letters that all mentioned love that week around Passover and Easter. So I tried to um, schedule the letters according to what was timely. And you can see this letter is about um, healing our country's division. And the letter writer quotes from Lincoln's house divided speech, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then arguing that this healing will only come from a cultivation of public compassion, which at the very least demands respect and decency toward those with whom we disagree. And then in the last paragraph of the letter, the um, Professor Massingale writes, Pope John Paul II declared that one of the most important questions facing society is how are we living together? Together, Mr. Trump, our collective response to that question will depend greatly upon both your compassion for the vulnerable and the quality of your respect with, for those with whom you disagree. So that letter went off, as I said, early that morning of February 12th. And um, that morning, you can see around 9 a.m., I noticed on my phone that there was a reply to the MailChimp account. So that was the in, in 24 days, that was the first sign that anyone in Washington was reading these letters. I excitedly opened up the email and found it was from Catherine McGuire, who's chief of staff for Republican Senator uh, Randy Holcren of Illinois. And she wrote about how she was really loving the letter at the beginning, but then how she found herself deflated and sorely disappointed with the concluding sentence, which in her opinion, just ruined the whole letter. She wrote, instead of driving home that we, the nation's people, should do all we can to rise above our current selves 
and create again that important notion of together, the conclusion seemed to press for continued divide, laying it at the feet of the divider himself. And she goes on to argue that that last sentence where, where the letter writer says, together, Mr. Trump, she says that, in her opinion, that last sentence undermined the core message of the letter in one full fell swoop. And then she wrote, I choose to work for the greater good and do all I personally can to be part of the solution, no matter what, rather than part of the problem. So I took her email, I forwarded it to uh, Brian Massengale and asked him to respond. And you can see in his response later that day, he explains why he, um, why he chose that rhetorical move to directly address Mr. And notice he calls him Mr. Trump, not President Trump in the end. And he says, for better or for worse, the nation takes its clues from the president's example. That is part of the burden and responsibility of anyone of any party who holds the privileged office that now is his. And then he thanks her for his service. And I forwarded that to Catherine um, McGuire. And she wrote back um, a, a message that really kept us going throughout the campaign. She wrote, keep the letters coming. People are reading them. They help to make sense of the world we live in today and remind us of the world we all want to live in tomorrow. So that really, so again, we're at day 24. We got a long, we were, we felt a good sense of accomplishment that we were about a quarter of the way through, but we still had 76 letters more to send. And in fact, Catherine McGuire is the only person of the thousands of people on our email, MailChimp email list in Washington that we heard from. She, she wrote me another, a little bit later in the campaign too. So, <clears throat> But that's not the only thing that happened on day 24. And this to me captures, I think, what this project is all about and its potential. So another Fordham professor, Karina Hogan, wrote to me later that same day and told me about how someone at, she had been, it was that day, February 12th was a Sunday, and someone at her church had came up to her, he's a, uh, and explained that he's a Democrat living in Manhattan, and that his brother is, um, who's a uh, oral works at Oral Roberts University from Oklahoma, and staunch Trump supporter. And that they had stopped talking during the campaign. And he said to her, um, "She was one of our letter writers. I want you to know that we started speaking again because of the letters. They started talking about the letters." And I later contacted this person, and he wrote to me to say that during the campaign, my brother and I stopped speaking. Values and voices created dialogue and healing for me. And this is, I think, the potential of this project and sort of what we all need to be doing now is even amongst the, the, the considerable disagreement of many people in our country, what are the ways that we can find opportunities for shared dialogue to listen to and learn from one another? So that got us to the 100 days. I'll share a little bit of uh, what happened next, and then I'll take, we'll pause for some questions. So at the end of 100 days, I found myself the custodian of 100 letters, as well as all of this artwork that uh, my friend Lisa, my collaborator, Lisa Weinberger, and the uh, other folks at Masters Group de de Design had created through the campaign. So, and Lisa had said to me when the campaign, campaign ended, well, we still have our social media platforms, just think how you might want to use them. So I found myself as the 
Trump administration and the the events that followed um, at, at the end of March, at the end of April, I mean, when the campaign ended, things kept happening. And pretty much for anything that happened on any given day, I felt like, oh, I have a letter about that. You know, whether it was the withdrawal of the Paris Climate Accords or Hurricane Harvey or International Women's Day or Coffee Day or Farmer's Day, pretty much for anything, I'd say to myself, oh, I have a letter about that. And I would put on social media snippets of the letters and using the artwork just to promote them and just continue to make the letters relevant and try to um, share the wisdom. And a year later, um, I had this idea that we would do the Presidential Values and Voices Presidential Primer, where every day we retweeted um, a quote from each of the day's letters. So we sort of did the 100 days again. And in this case, I recruited my students at the Hebrew Union College, and I gave each student who wanted to volunteer a, a week, and they're the ones who selected the quotes. And the last thing that happened is, which was my sense of what the what I was hoping to accomplish with the book, with the project eventually is to publish the letters in a book. And we did this through the University of Cincinnati Press, which was a new academic press at the time. Um, HUC, Hebrew Union College has a campus on Cincinnati, in Cincinnati. And in, the, um, in February of 2018, um, about a year after the campaign uh, went on, uh, I was at our Cincinnati campus and the University of Cincinnati Press was just getting started. I met with the, just as an informational meeting, the press asked to um, meet with some of us at HUC. And after hearing about what they intended to accomplish with their, this new press, I said, oh, I think I have a, a book for you. And this American Values Religious Voices was one of their, the first book that, um, that they published. And this felt to me like the culmination of the project. Um, and in a way that had succeeded um, beyond my expectations. And I felt really good about this as what I thought was the culmination of the project. I wanna stop my screen there and just ask if, um, before I continue to tell what happened uh, after the publication of the book, if anyone has any questions that they wanna ask. Okay, well, I, uh, I'm, I'll go back to, this, to, the, uh, to the PowerPoint and then uh, we'll, I'll have opportunity again. Oh, did someone have? Um, aside from that one response that you um, talked about in the present, uh -huh. were there any other responses to the letters? Not official responses in terms of um, folks from Washington. And, and it wasn't for lack of trying. I, you know, both in sending the letters, I also, um, we had as part of the campaign, we tried to encourage people to directly email their own Congress people and, and their senators and members of Congress so by, um, you know, going in and, you know, for example, I'm in Pennsylvania, so I could go to my own senator's website and email them directly. And we had a, a message that we encourage people to, to use, you know, you, you are your chief of staff and legislative directors receiving a letter a day from so on, you know, from American Values Religious Voices. Are you getting the letter? So we, we tried every which way and um, to get uh, more responses, but we didn't. And at a certain point, um, we just had to say that what we, um, while we weren't hearing directly from other people um, in Washington, we were getting a lot of feedback from other people. That's part of the feedback that I shared. And that really kept us going. So we knew um, when we originally started the project, we weren't sure that anyone besides my mother and Lisa's mother was going to read the letters. And here we had over 2,000 people who were subscribing, and we knew 
from all the metrics on our website and on our social media platforms, how many people were sharing and reading the letters and that people were finding them meaningful. One of the most uh, meaningful comments I heard from a number of people was that people that the letters made people feel like they weren't alone and that they just felt connected to other people. And it was just reaffirming to hear what they held as true and enduring. Uh, hear other people sh um, sharing those, those insights as well and those commitments. Um, so that kept us going. Any other questions for now? Okay, so I will tell the part two of the, of the story what happened next. As I said, so the publication of the book, I thought, was the uh, conclusion of the project. And then the election of 2020 happened. And as we were waiting out the election results um, that week after, again, the week after the election, and here we were in the midst of a pandemic. Um, it was the summer we had, after the death of George Floyd, we were experiencing the racial reckoning that we were seeing in our country. And, um, and I and we were it was clear that whoever was going to win the election that we were still incredibly divided as a nation and I really felt like well we have the website we have our social media platforms and I felt I had a letter that I wanted to write and I felt like others might too and that just as our readers found the letters meaningful in 2017 maybe people would find the project meaningful again but at the same time, uh, over the, the ensuing four years, I had become provost. I knew I did not have the capacity to give this project um, my attention day and night in the way that it had uh, that it took in 2016 and 2017 to make it happen. Um, and I knew I couldn't ask Lisa again to dedicate all that she had dedicated to make the project happen. So uh, the, in the, the Saturday after the election, it was that day, I think later that day we found out the results, but I called my daughter, that's Rebecca Tauber on the left, um, who was then a senior at Williams College and um, at the time editor of, a school, of her school newspaper. And um, so I knew she had uh, by nature and nurture had the edit editorial skills that I needed for the project. And I called her and asked her if she would join me in reviving the campaign and um, being my editorial assistant. And then I said, well, and she eagerly agreed. Um, and I said, well, I'll need you to recruit some other friends because we'll need someone to do the social media, the graphics, et cetera. So within a few hours, she had recruited two of her friends, uh, Sophia Sonnenfeld and Kayla Gilman, and they they formed our uh, wonderful 2021 campaign staff uh, from Williams College. And they're the three people along with Lisa and myself uh, we were able to make the project happen. Uh, we also got funding this time around from Littman Camfer Foundation for Living Tour that allowed us to, to uh, redo our website and which you'll see what that allowed us to do in a minute. And we launched, we, we sent an email to all of our subscribers from 2017 on January 5th, 2021. Uh, so, so timing was key there. It was good that it definitely would have gotten lost in the events of January 6th. But we sent two things. Um, we we announced the launch, and two days before, so or a few days before, on December, on um, I want to go back a month on December second. Once we decided to do the campaign on December second of 2020, which was exactly four years to the day that we sent the initial invitations for the first campaign, I wrote to the hundred scholars that had written the first time and told them that we were going to launch a second campaign and asked if they wanted to um, write another letter. And in, in one day, I heard from about a quarter of our hundred letter writers 
saying, yes, they wanted to write another letter. They thanked me for doing the project again and were eager to, to uh, join forces. In the end, we had over 50 people from the first campaign who wrote letters again. And then we went through the same process of just reaching out to people. We tried really hard to make the um, our, our group of letter writers even more diverse than the first time. We had sort of a more nuanced sense, I think, of what diversity meant um, in terms of uh, who we were looking for. And um, again, it took us till about the um, first day of the campaign to get 100 scholars all together. Um, and I want to re start read my letter and you'll see the difference. You'll see sort of the difference in tone. You can see already the difference in, in the addressee. This time the, the, the um, letters were addressed to President Biden and Vice President Harris and members of the 117th Congress. I'll also add one other change we made uh, this time was that the letters were posted at 6 a.m. So I didn't quite have to get up quite so early for 100 days. But um, I'll, I'll read my letter again and you can hear the difference in, in uh, four, four years later. So I wrote uh, this time in on January 20th, 2021 to our national administration. As you begin your service to our fragile, fractured country, the challenges you face seem almost insurmountable. How will you achieve the lofty goals that motivated you to run for office amidst a devastating pandemic, assaults on our democracy, the corrosive effects of systemic racism, and ample evidence of an imperiled planet? The word for hope in the Bible offers an answer. Psalm 27 ends with the charge repeated twice to hope for God. That's in verse 14. The same verb appears when Job exclaims, I hoped for good, but evil came from Job 30 verse two. And when the people lament, this is in Jeremiah 14, 19, why do we hope for peace, but there is no good for a time of healing but behold, there is terror. The verb recurs in Isaiah 5, 7, an ancient verse with a contemporary resonance. God hoped for justice, but behold, injustice. For equity, but behold, iniquity. In these and other citations, hope leads to disappointment when an anticipated positive outcome fails to come to fruition. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. recognized the relationship between hope and disappointment in an address delivered on February 6, 1968, when he declared, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. How can we hold both hope and disappointment in our own lives and in your work as our elected leaders? In between these two calls to hope for God in Psalm 27, we find a phrase sometimes translated as be strong and be of good courage. Elsewhere in the Bible, the two roots in this verse are used as part of an expression of encouragement, as when Moses charges Joshua, be strong and courageous, Deuteronomy 31, 7. But only in Psalm 27, 14 and Psalm 21, 31, 25, does the second ver verb appear in the causative grammatical form, which I would translate as be strong and cause your heart to be resilient. Take that advice to heart as you get to work 
be courageous, be kind, be hopeful about your ability to bring about a better world. So you can see sort of the, um, and this was a, was a text that was such a go-to Psalm 27 verse 14 and Psalm in general, but was such a go-to text for me throughout the pandemic. And this is the message that I really wanted to share about hope and courage and disappointment. So that's the that's the um, the letter that that got us started. The campaign, as I said, worked um, exactly the same way. The letters went out on our website to our subscribers. We sent them on Mailchimp. And the and the big difference here, as you can see, in the intervening four years, I had a new dog that our, our dog Sophie had passed away. This is my new dog Jordy, and every day Jordy and I would uh, would mail the letters. And again, we had the same social media platforms, exactly the same. One of the new features of the campaign, and this was helpful to work with uh, our young editorial team and uh, uh, who are more uh, who brought a lot of, of technological savvy and know-how, was we we created on our website the opportunity to put videos. So we asked the authors to record themselves either audio or video reading the letters. So here's an example. This is um, uh, Simran Singh. He's a uh, a well-known uh, author. You can, I encourage you to take a look at uh, his, a lot of his wonderful books, but I love this image. I mean, if you were to, this just looks like the pandemic, you know, we've all gotten so used to this view that you see in this picture, as you see behind me of, of uh, what would have been unimaginable before the pandemic is people doing their work from their own homes. And um, so you can, and, and by, by putting the recordings up and, and asking people to record them, um, it really brings the letters to life and you can hear the distinct voices. You see people in all of um, their, you know, in their own homes and in their offices and diversity. So we, we have over half the letters um, we have on video. You can check out our YouTube channel, Values and Voices. So that was a new component. We also took advantage of um, the Zoom platform, which we all became much more used to over Zoom. And we created an... Um, a live interactive forum with a President's Day performance and community conversation. And this came about because David Bradley, who's in the upper left-hand corner, he's a, um, an arts producer in Philadelphia. And as soon as we announced on January 5th that we were um, gonna launch that campaign, he contacted us and he said that he was a follower of the campaign in 2017. And he said, I can hear these letters being sung. I can hear them being read. So we worked with him to create this program and you can see, and he recruited um, artists who several of whom wrote original songs. Also you can find on YouTube and um, artists, um, actors who read selected letters. And we also had here Philadelphia Congressman Dwight Evans who joined us to um, be part of the conversation. So, um, what I want to do now is to share one of, and if you see here, well, you'll meet him in a minute, David Strathairn, who's a, a, a pretty famous actor, and David uh, uh, knew him, so he, uh, we, we were able to get him to record a letter, and um, I'm going to share this, he's, his reading of Mark Brettler's letter, which again will kind of give you a sense of, of the different message in, in uh, the 2021 campaign. So take a listen. Dear President Biden, Vice President Harris, and members of the 117th Congress. Four years ago, after the election results were announced, 
I wrote two biblical quotations in Hebrew on my office door so that I would see them daily, be reminded of their truth, and be spurred to action. The first was from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 20, which should be translated as, quote, After justice, after justice, must you chase. Zedek, Zedek, Tirdof. Most English translations miss how emphatic this command is. It repeats justice twice. As the medieval Jewish commentator Abraham Ibn Ezra notes, this doubling implies that you must act justly time after time, whether it is to your advantage or disadvantage. The word I translated as chase is often incorrectly rendered less forcefully as follow or pursue, but it is a, it's a very physical running word. You do and should get tired from such sprinting, but it is essential to keep running after justice and to call out and to redress injustice wherever you may find it. My second quote is more tranquil and aims to counterbalance the frenetic image of the first. Quote, Love, truth, and shalom. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19. While guiding the Jews to recover from a traumatic national calamity, the prophet Zechariah was an optimist, proclaiming in one of my favorite Bible passages, quote, There shall yet be old men and women in the squares of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age, and the squares of the city shall be crowded with boys and girls playing in the squares. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. But this new society must be based on truth and shalom. Typically, that last word is translated as peace, which we so desperately hope for in these turbulent times. But its meaning here is personal well-being or wholeness, the main responsibility of government. Only through such wholeness can the young and old enjoy and benefit from life. I believe that sections of all the world's scriptures, including the Hebrew Bible, my scripture, have the ability to heal. May this administration use scriptures well to chase justice and to love the truth, supporting the well-being and peace for all of us. I look forward to the day when this happens. When it does, I will no longer need these Bible verses as a reminder on my office door. Shalom. Mark Zvi Brettler, Bernice and Morton Lerner, Distinguished Professor in Judaic Studies, Duke University. Okay, so that gives you a, a, a sense of another one of the letters. And again, the, and we'll see it in a minute, but the, the themes of, of uh, hope, justice um, were some of the key themes of the campaign. So we, we had another, just to kind of quickly conclude that uh, this campaign, we, we had a gathering of some of the, the uh, 
the female identified authors as part of Women's History Month. That was another thing we did. We, um, I was very pleased toward the end of the campaign. We got the, uh, we, had, we had press coverage throughout, um, um, particularly in connection to the Dear President Biden event. Um, and toward the end of the campaign, we had this terrific article in the Washington Post. And this came about uh, part from <clears throat> help of some connections of uh, Rabbi Danny Zemel uh, in Washington. And um, you can see the headline here is for 100 days, religious scholars uh, sent Trump letters about scripture and modern night life. Now they're writing to Biden. And I felt like um, this gave the project the particularly in Washington, but gave it the, the press that it deserved and um, did a really wonderful job covering it. I'll just add that in the first campaign early on in uh, 2017, I'd, I had had an interview with the New York Times. They were interested in writing about the campaign and they sent a photographer to my house and took pictures of me with all of my stacks of Bibles that I used to edit the letters and me walking my dog to mail the letters and the article. I, I, I waited for that article for 100 days and it never happened. So it was especially gratifying that this time around uh, we had this article in the Washington Post. We also had um, a piece on the BBC. So it was just, so it was good to see that the um that the project got some publicity. And then um, if you're wondering, did anyone officially respond this time around? Um, later, so the campaign ended day 100 was uh, April 29th of 20, um, 2021. And months later, I went to my office in New York. So on the, on the stationery of the printed letters that I mailed, um, the Hebrew Union College uh, in New York was the address that we used for the campaign. And I went to my office and I found a whole stack of these exact same envelopes, all of which uh, with the exact same letter from the vice president, but thanking me, thank, thanking for the note of support uh, of, of support. And uh, this message, you know, again, form message from the vice president, but at least was a sign that someone in the vice president's office read uh, read these letters and responded to about, uh, you know, sent. So we got about uh, maybe about 25 of them to uh, to various authors in the campaign. And the, the culmination of this, uh, the 2021 campaign, is the publication of the letters as volume two, American Values, Religious Voices, Letters of Hope from People of Faith. And uh, we just sent that book to the, to the printer this week, and hopefully that'll be out in January. Um, and so let me, um, I think I'm gonna stop there and um, let me take questions. If if uh, as we're reaching the the end of our time, let me see if people have questions. They want to ask questions or make observations. Thank you so much, Rabbi Weiss. Yes, um, if anyone has questions, please feel free to unmute to raise your hand. Hi, Sandra. Hi. Um, coming into this hour, I was very curious about whether we would be hearing more about universal values or something that was uniquely American. And I think that even my caring about that changed through the hour, that indeed there are universal values. And if there's anything uniquely American about the letters, it's that we do have so many diverse voices that if they're only heard and listened to that, that is what could perhaps make us special. And, you know, let's put the American exceptionalism behind us. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I don't know if that made any sense, but I just wanted to kind of observe that. 
Yeah, well, let me quickly share what the last piece that I had, depending on the amount of time. So one, one of the things, let me back this up, that we did for the first campaign, when I uploaded the letters, for each letter, I would I would tag a number of quality qualities or topics. So this was what the original letters looked like. And so you could click on common good and see all the letters. And so for the first book, we did uh, we did two two page spreads where we, we took the top 20 values and added up how many letters. Um, and we did the same thing for the second book again, and, and the tallies, I have to say a little bit more art than, um, than science, but, but to get, we wanted to get a sense of like, what were the, the, since we called the project American Values Religious Voices, what were the most prominent values? And this chart shows you the top 20 values from each campaign. And it's interesting to see what values are most prominent and also what changed in the intervening four years. If we had more time, we kind of dwell on this and you can, so you can, and, and the, the values that are most prominent both reflect the key values in our religious, in, in our various religious traditions. So for example, the emphasis on justice, we heard Mark Brettler's letter, Tzedek Jerdof. I talked about that in my letter one in 2017 about the emphasis on justice, that's just core to the Bible. And then the ways in which the other letters reflect and respond to what's going on around. So you'll see in 2017, two of the most common values were care of the stranger and care of the vulnerable. That very much reflected the, the policies of the Trump administration, um, particularly as concerns uh, immigrants, uh, Muslims. Uh, and so people were, were emphasizing those values. Now, if you see in, in 2021, uh, truth, that's one of the most common values, again, re reflecting that healing, which isn't even mentioned uh, in in um, 2017. And you can see here, hope is another value. So this is interesting to compare. That was one of the reasons that I was interested to do the campaign again, was to sort of see, again, they're both, these are both time capsules. So to see how the what values would be prominent the second time around. Um, so yes. Uh, Thank you. That's okay. Thank you. All right. So um, I'm not sure if I'm going to get this out the right way because I'm a little brain fried right now. It's the end of the semester. But um, I remember back in 2017, to give you context, I was someone who believed that religion was the opiate of the masses. Okay. So, but I remember like at the beginning of spring semester 2017 versus fall semester 2017, I saw a just tank in behavior, like the behavior of students. Um, and I was looking at it the whole time and I'm thinking they're taking their cues from a certain person who thinks he's a president and everything thinks he's a leader. And through Starburst at Angela Merkel, you know, just stuff like that, and, you know, just the level of obnoxiousness and everything. And so it really kind of started hitting me just how much people take cues from, you know, politicians and well also, but they also take cues from religious leaders. And so the way that I was kind of looking at it, would you actually think of expanding the project to, I don't know, another presidency or expanding the project for more religious voices or anything? What's the future of this? Because I think it's really important. Yeah, well, thank you. And just out of curiosity, where and what do you teach? I teach history. And I teach history. Well, right now I've got three different colleges, though, but it was at community college where I just like... You you don't want to know. Trust me. Okay. You don't okay. want to know. <laughs> yeah, 
and, and I'll, I'll just add in the first book one. So the, the both books contain um, the letters plus es various essays. And, and in the, the first book, we have an essay uh, from a historian. I wanted someone who was outside of the project to, to look in. And it's someone who was teaching at St. Joe's University on a class on politics and religion. And she was assigning the letters to her students. So she wrote about that. And in the second book, we have... Um, a letter from a historian I, who also studies politics and history. And I wanted someone to look at that project and sort of both campaigns and see what bigger things emerge. So um, just to say that you might be interested in both of those essays. So awesome. I'm not going to, when I, you know, finished it the first time I felt, especially after the book came out, I felt like it had really exceeded my expectations. You know, I, I, I I'm a Bible scholar by training. My area is metaphor in the Bible. This, I had not planned, as I said, like I was halfway through a book when I had this idea in the book, my binders and notes are still gathering dust. I haven't gotten back to them. So, um, but I felt really compelled to do this project. And um, so when the when the book came out, I thought, okay, I'm done. It exceeded my expectations. Now I'll get back to, you know, my, my day job. Um, and I wasn't expecting to do the book the second time. So I'm not gonna say I won't do it a third time, but, um, <laughs> Because uh, it was in incredibly gratifying to to do this and just sort of be especially uh, to, you know, be part of this community of people, both of the letter writers and also the letter readers. Um, and the letters were meaningful for people. And they they really, um, I think they, they just uh, are both to kind of capture what's true and enduring in our faith traditions. I think they, they show why religion matters and, and, the um, just the enduring values of our of our religious traditions in a way that that I hope will motivate people. And also, you know, for me, one of in, in Mark, you heard about you heard Mark Brettler's 2021 letter, but in his 2017 letter, he he wrote about how we each are responsible for caring for our community and everyone has to step up. And mm -hmm. you, you can't rely on someone. In, uh, well, let me just I'm going to quote this. Uh, directly because I'm not going to do justice, but he wrote, standing idly by or arguing that someone else should step up is not an option. We are each accountable if we do not work to improve our communities. And this was my way of stepping up. I completely was not expecting this, but I, you know, it went from this far-fetched idea to here. So I, I hope everyone will find what's your way to step up. You know, what can you do to try to make the world a better place? Awesome. And I think with that, we're at the end of the hour. That, that takes us to the end of it perfectly. Um, Rabbi Wise, thank you so much for being here with us today. It was a pleasure to learn from you. And uh, thank you everyone for joining us. As Rabbi Shmuley mentioned, we have a great program coming up on Sunday, our film screening of The Jewish Jail Lady and the Holy Thief at 4 p.m. Mountain Time, either in person or virtually. Um, on Wednesday, we have another program, Nothing But the Truth, Balancing an Embrace of Tradition with Personal Integrity with Rabbi Leon Morris, and that'll be at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And then another program on Thursday, Darkness Will Envelop Me, Meditations on Hanukkah and Winter with Dr. Dvorah Steinmetz, also so at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. So that we uh, we hope that you can join us for some of those as well and wishing you all a great rest of your day. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world.
Thanks for listening.